Hello, 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 and welcome everybody to another episode of Thinking Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Today we are discussing chapter 14 and the 13th principle of the book titled The Sixth Sense, The Door to the Temple of Wisdom. Now this is a very interesting chapter and it is sort of um, uh, a result of the other 12 principles of success or uh, other 12 steps towards riches. Um, and in order for this one to be realized, the others need to be cultivated and experienced severely. Now he says the 13th principle is known as the sixth sense through which infinite intelligence may and will communicate voluntarily without any effort from or demands by the individual. The sixth sense is that portion of the subconscious mind which has been referred to previously as creative imagination. It has also been referred to as the receiving set through which ideas and thoughts flash into the mind. Whenever you have something called hunches or uh, flashes or uh, bouts of inspiration, that's the creative mind, that's the creative imagination, that's your sixth sense. The sixth sense defies expectation, he says, and defies description. It cannot be described to a person who has not mastered the other principles of this philosophy because such a person has no knowledge and no experience with which the sixth sense may be compared. To the aid of the sixth sense, though, you will be warned of impending danger in time to avoid them and notified of opportunities in time to embrace them. He says the author is not a believer or an advocate of miracles for the reason that he has enough knowledge of nature to understand that nature never deviates from her established laws. This much the author does know that there is a power or a first cause of intelligence which permeates every atom of matter and embraces every unit of energy perceptible to man, that this infinite intelligence converts acorns into oak trees, cause water, causes water to flow down a hill in response to the law of gravity, follows night with day and winter with summer, each maintaining its proper place in relationship to the other. And this form of, of, of uh, creative imagination also occurs within people. And there are some people that are great, then there are some people that imitate the great. Napoleon Hill very clearly admits that he had, and he still, while writing this book, uh, did imitate the great. And in the previous chapters, you would have seen uh, how he has, has talked about in such vast detail uh, about great industrialists and inventors like Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, Charles Darwin, and Andrew Carnegie. Um, and, and this form of he hero worship, he did with a purpose. He says, I found myself trying to imitate those whom I most admired. Moreover, I discovered that the element of faith with which I endeavored to imitate my idols gave me great capacity to do so quite successfully. I have never entirely divested myself of this habit of hero worship. My experience has taught me that the next best thing to being truly great is to emulate the great and there's nothing wrong with that. A feeling in action as nearly as possible. And this form of hero worship was not done in passing. It was done in, with structure. Uh, he had nine members of an invisible counselor, invisible counselor, as he called them, uh, who would advise him twice every day, once when he, uh, when he woke up and once when he slept in the, in the, in the evening. Um, this consisted of uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Thomas Paine, Thomas Edison, Charles Darwin, Abraham Lincoln, Luther Burbank, Napoleon uh, Bonaparte, Henry Ford, and Andrew Carnegie. Every night over a period of years, I held an imaginary council meetings, he said, with this group whom I called the Invisible Councils. And Napoleon Hill did not just serve as an observer. He served as the chairman of this council. 
I had a very definite purpose in in indulging my imagination through these nightly meetings. He said, "My purpose was to rebuild my own character, so it would represent a composite of the characters of my imaginary counselors." As he said previously, "If you can't be great, emulate the great." In part, realizing as I did early in life that I had to overcome my handicap of birth in an environment of ignorance and superstition, I deliberately assigned myself the task of voluntary rebirth. So the method here described now. This is not just done in passing. It's not just done as what would he say, or what would he say, or what would she say. It's it's done very clearly as this is what I'm going to ask them. This is how they're going to say it. This is their mannerisms when they say it. This is how they will attend the meetings. This is how they will interact with other people, not just me, even though they are uh, uh, figments of my imagination. He said, "Mr. Emerson, I desire to acquire from you marvelous understanding of nature, which distinguished your life. Mr. Burbank, I request that you pass on to me the knowledge which enabled you to harmonize the laws of nature. Napoleon, I desire to acquire from you my emulation, the marvelous ability you possess to inspire men and to arouse them to greater and more determined spirit of action." So his dialogues were very direct with them. His dialogues were not uh, what would. Uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln do what would Thomas Paine do? It was this is what I want from you, and I have read and understood your character so well and so deeply that I know what you will say, and what you will say would be the right thing, and that is what I will follow. He also encapsulated um, mannerisms, which is quite unique. For instance, he would say Lincoln developed the habit of always being late, then walking around in solemn parade. When he came, he walked slowly. Very slowly, with his hands clasped clasped behind him, and once in a while he would stop as he passed and rest his hands momentarily upon my shoulder. He always wore an expression of seriousness upon his face. Rarely did I see him smile. Now, these these mannerisms are not just hallucinations, as one would think. Um, these are just ways with which he he realizes Napoleon Hill realizes that he has to be these people. And he has to surround himself with these people. This was uh, what you should surround yourself with your mastermind group in a previous chapter that we talked about. He says, when the time comes, you will observe that life consists of great swarms of energy or entities, each as intelligent as human beings think themselves to be. These units are grouped together by hives of bees that remain the, and remain together until they disintegrate through lack of harmony. These units have differences of opinion, the same as human beings, and often fight themselves. They will bring to your rescue some of the habits, some of the same units of life which served the members of your cabinet during their lives. These units are eternal; they never die. Your own thoughts and desires serve as a magnet, which attracts units of life from the great ocean of life out there. Only the friendly units are attracted, the ones which harmonize with the ones with the nature of your desires. He says, "Lest I be misunderstood, I wish here to state most emphatically that I still regard my cabinet." Meetings as being purely imaginary, not hallucinations. But I feel entitled to suggest that while the members of my cabinet may be purely fiction, and the meetings existence on, existent only in my own imagination, they have led me into glorious paths of adventure, rekindled my, rekindled my appreciation of true greatness, encouraged creative endeavor, and emboldened an expression of honest art. Any emergency which arouses the emotions and causes the heart to beat more rapidly, generally does bring the sixth sense into action. And who has experienced a near accident while driving, while walking, while running, while commuting? 
knows that on such occasions, sixth sense often comes to one's rescue and aids by split seconds in avoiding the accidents. On scores of occasions when I have faced emergencies, some of them grave, I have been miraculously guided past these difficulties through the influence of my invisible counsel. So it's not just a play that he is continuously uh, uh, rehearsing in his mind. There's actually scenarios that does come into, into play um, later on in his life. I go to my imaginary counselors with every difficult problem which confronts me and my clients. The results are often astonishing, although I do not depend entirely on this form of counsel. The sixth sense is a subject that will be of great interest and benefit to the person whose aim is to accumulate vast wealth, but it need not claim the attention of those whose desires are merely modest. No matter what you are, no matter who you are, no matter what you've been through, no matter your purpose in reading this book, you can profit by it by, by, uh, by understanding the principle described in this chapter. This is especially true if your major, a major purpose in life is the accumulation of money or other material things. The purpose of creating invisible counselors is to cultivate a sixth sense. The purpose of cultivating a sixth sense is to have that split second reaction or response in situations that do not allow you time to think. And if you have either inculcated these on your own or inculcated these through imitation of great people, then you will have that knowledge to, to act in those situations that really test people's will and longevity. And that is important. That is what Hill uh, is trying to inculcate through formation of his own counselors and through the writings in this chapter. That's it from this chapter. In the next episode, we will discuss the final chapter uh, of uh, Thinking Grow Rich titled How to Outwit the Six Posts of Fear. Until then, I will see you next time.